Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Good morning, folks. It is a joy to be here again. We are carrying on. We've been going through the book of uh, Acts for, um, I don't know how long, a while. We're going to be going through for a while yet longer into the summer, actually. Don't let that discourage you. Hopefully it'll still be, a, it's God's word. So it'll be worth coming to hear and study and learn more about. And we're into chapter 5. I'm going to read, it's a pretty big section, uh, verse, chapter 5, 17, all the way through to 42. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, and said, Go and stand in the temple, and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with him, they they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And some came and told them, Look, The men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And the the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom you have given, sorry, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He, too, perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan is, or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then... 
They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple from that, from, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Okay, very popular, very famous interaction there. Um, I love that the kids are in the service because kids always love hearing about German philosophers like Hegel. <laughs> As I'm thinking, my poor kids. So Hegel, Hegel, if you've taken philosophy, you know his name. We're not going to get into his philosophy because it's, it's, he's a giant in the world of philosophy. But as regards the way he understood history, he makes some interesting observations. He says history flows in a continuous cycle. It varies here and there, but generally this is the cycle that all history flows through on the big and small scale. And it flows from, and I'll use his words, but then I'll explain them. It flows from thesis to antithesis or antithesis, and then on to synthesis. And this goes on forever. And what he means by this is that the thesis is the status quo. That's the way the world is now. And every time we think everything's going well, something comes and disrupts our world. That is the antithesis. And then there's a clash. The way the world is and the way the world is now changing to become clash. And the result of that clash is a new normal, a new world. And that's the synthesis. Pretty simple. So I'm use a couple of examples. Um, one from the 20th century might be after the Second World War, we have the 50s. And there's a time of optimism. Leave it to Beaver. Right? A time of optimism, a time of good having just triumphed over evil in the war. Let's now rebuild and be flourishing and uh, institute morality that we didn't see in the war. Let's be wholesome. This was that wave that hit the 50s, and you see it on television. But disrupting that thesis comes the 60s. And if anyone happened to live through those 60s, you know it was a time of turbulence. It's a time of, uh, well, the Cold War began to heat up. Cold War between Soviet Union and the West. There's the Bay of Pigs invasion. There's the Cuban Missile Crisis. There is the civil rights movement that is sweeping. The hippies are rising. Uh, there's the, the assassinations of, and I'm going to use the acronyms, so if you don't know them, you have to Google, JFK, RFK, and MLK all are assassinated in the 60s. And after this, and the Vietnam War, protests, so great disruption, the antithesis has hit Leave it to Beaver, right? And then what comes out of it is the 70s and 80s. This is product that is formed of it. And it depends, uh, yeah, John Travolta, fancy. Uh, and what, depending on where you are, I know we have people who listen to the sermons around uh, North America especially. If you were in America at the time, then what happened after the disruption in the very liberal 60s, there's a backlash. And there's a new conservative, a new right. That's not the language of the modern political world, friends. Every generation, there's a new right and a new left. And they have two uh, Republican pre uh, presidents in Nixon and Ford that kind of dominates a reaction to the liberal 60s and the, and the, and the hippie movement, etc. In Canada, we went the opposite way, right? We had Trudeau, who, who, Pierre Trudeau, who was here from 68, I think it is, straight through to 79, with a little break there for about a year, and then he's back. And so we have the synthesis, the new normal, and more recently you have COVID, right? Don't we all still talk about before COVID and during COVID, after COVID? And we had this normal, this thesis, and then comes COVID, the antithesis, and now we have this world we live in now that is different than it was before. And so Hegel says this is the way the history works, generally speaking. It's cycles of this. Sometimes it's decades long. Sometimes you can narrow in and find moments, 9-11, etc. And that's fair. 
Okay, and what you see here in this passage is one of these sorts of moments. You're seeing here in the early chapters of, of Acts, in fact, of the whole book of Acts, is the thesis, the way things were in Israel, is being challenged by this new wave, Christianity. And specifically, it's not just Christianity. See, right now we don't see the synthesis. You don't see how it's going to end yet. If you, well, you've read the book. You're here in the 21st century. But we don't, in the book at this point in chapter 5, know what God is doing entirely. But we have an idea of it. And we're seeing here, we're witnessing the clash of the thesis, the Jewish leaders and the status quo in Israel, and the antithesis, God coming. And God has always done this. God has, all through the, all through the Bible, all through history, has come in, and he has engaged and confronted the current power holders and the power of the world and the powers of humanity, and, and attacked it, <laughs> confronted it, and challenged it with truth. And this is where we get the idea of, speak, of truth speaking to power. So he breaks in and challenges the way the world is now, and he's trying to create something out of it, a synthesis that will come. And so we're seeing that here. So what we're going to look at, and we can, it's a big passage, so what we're going to try to do is see what is it that God is doing here? What is the message of truth that he brings into moments to challenge the world? How does the world then respond? So what is the truth he speaks into the world? What is, how does the power holders, how does the world respond to it? And then lastly, how do we become those truth speakers? Because make no mistake, the book of Acts is trying to show you how to be a Christian in the modern world, in any age. And so we're going to try to figure that out. So the first step is to say, well, what is he saying? What is, what is it this truth that he speaks? Now let me, in this part, really just explain what I mean by this. Genesis 1, humanity falls. And when we fall, we reject God as the power in our life who to tell us and the, and the definer of truth and goodness. And we don't, it's not, a, it's not like we just leave God aside and then have nothing there. We, we turn to other things to be the powers in our life. And so this, have you ever heard the language of investing in power? We invest power in a king or in Trudeau or in the prime minister because truth, we have to have something over us, something we trust to tell us what life should be like. And after the fall, humanity starts doing this. We start creating institutions and people and traditions and narratives and social media that we then say, That's, that defines truth for me. This is, this is how I know if I am good and if you are bad. If you disagree with my, the narrative I prefer, then you're wrong, I'm right. And we invest power in something. This is what, listen, our prime minister is a prime minister not because he won an election. He's prime minister because we have agreed as people of Canada that we will respect an election. But the moment power begins to uh, lose it, we lose trust in that power, they begin to tremble. Because not only is there another election, fortunately here we don't just run to revolt, but power is always given in the human world. And in the world, when, when humans start giving power to other things, kings, friends, family, sexuality, whatever it is, God then will jump in regularly and say, I can't have this power leading my people away from, from me. I am the only power. So he breaks in and he speaks truth to those powers. And if you don't know, let's show you a few of them in Scripture. It happens so often, I cannot, you're going to see it. He be, it doesn't begin here, but here's, what, here's an early one. Moses. Moses comes as an agent of truth, and he speaks to the power of Pharaoh and says, you are wrong. You are not the power holder you think you are. And it's not just there. Nathan comes as a prophet and says to David, you are not the king you think you are. You are not free to do as you please. You have abused power, and now truth must come and, ch and tell you and challenge you. 
It doesn't stop there. It goes on. Ahijah, if you know who he is, a very small part in the book of Kings. He's this little prophet who shows up and hammers Rehoboam, rips the cloak from him, and says, you're corrupt. God is going to tear the kingdom from you. Truth speaking to power. It goes on. Elijah does it to Ahab. Jeremiah does it to Jehoiakim. John the Baptist does it to Herod. Jesus does it to Pilate. Peter is doing it here to the Sanhedrin. And we, well, Paul will then do it to Rome. And you and I are then those agents of truth that God says, go into the world and challenge the power of the world because it's wrong and it needs to be challenged. And he does this all through Scripture. Those are just some of the names. The whole thing you could look at and say, my goodness, it's always God coming and trying to break the idols that we have made. Now, when he does come, what is the message? What is that truth he speaks? It's always the same. It's, it's not, um, it doesn't vary as much as we think. It's pretty much the same message, Old Testament, New Testament. And I'm going uh, to kind of walk alongside two stories. I'm going to use the Exodus story of Moses and Pharaoh and the Acts part passage we just read to kind of emphasize and show you what this, what's going on in here. So in Exodus... God shows up, but he shows up in response to human need. Not, in fact, not, it's human need and power's failure. He shows up in, 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 um, in chapter 3 to Moses of Exodus, and he says, I've heard their cry. I've heard the cry of the people. And when he steps up to Pharaoh, what he is saying is, you have failed as a power holder. I have given power, I've granted power to the leaders of the world to exercise it for good and for the human flourishing. And he has failed. And so God steps in with truth. He has to intervene. And when he steps in, what is the message he gives to Moses? It's not rocket science. It's very simple. I am Lord. Yahweh is Lord, not Pharaoh. And the very moment he speaks those words, the moment that this antithesis comes to the thesis, the moment somebody rises up in Egypt and says, because of God, you are not necessarily king, that you think you are Pharaoh, everything changes. Because now, from that point on, the moment Moses shows up, Pharaoh can no longer claim a monopoly on truth. He now has to respond to truth from a position of power. And now the question is, will he yield to truth or will he exercise power to maintain power and deny truth? The battle begins. And so, this is the message. And from that point, see, here's one of the great things. Truth is uncompromising. The message is very simple. You are not king. We say that to the world. We say that in our families to the children, to toddlers. I know you're freaking out because you want a different fork, but you are not king. <laughs> we say that in our families. We say it in our communities. We say it on social media. We say it to our workplaces. We say it to our leaders. That's our job. We are brought here. We are transformed to then bring the truth of the gospel, bring the truth of God into the world and confront the world with truth. Because once it's there, it cannot be denied. And you're going to see that in greater measure in both of these stories. Now, when he does this, he is immediately deconstructing and delegitimizing the power of Pharaoh. Let me explain what I mean. When he comes and when God challenges Pharaoh through Moses, Moses or Pharaoh now is being exposed. And now the world and Egypt and the Israelites and the world is now watching and saying, huh, is it possible that these slaves are right? Does he only have the form of power and not the substance of power? And this is what God exposes, as you're going to see, and not just to Pharaoh, but here in Acts 5. We turn now to Acts 5 with the same idea. What's the message that the church brings to the leadership of Israel? It's the exact same thing. 
Christ is Lord. God will. First says, God is Lord. God is king. And he has raised this Jesus and made him Lord, made him the archagon in Greek, which is the, um, uh, the leader or the prince. He is Lord. And this is just as impactful to the leaders because now they're forced to say, well, we were lords. <laughs> we determined right and wrong. We're the keepers of the truth. And now here we have a challenge to it. And so the question again is raised, are they going to, how are they going to respond to it? Which we're going to see in a minute. But the story that they bring, the gospel story itself, is a counter story. It's a counter narrative. Every single narrative the world spins about everything is a lie if it is not rooted in God. And so the gospel represents a counter story. And when it shows up here in Acts 5, one of the reasons that the leaders have such trouble containing it is because it's a more compelling and more powerful message. Literally more compelling, first of all, and more powerful. It's more compelling because it seems to offer hope. And it's more powerful because it's literally accompanied by miracles. And so it causes everyone to say, oh my goodness, who's really in charge here? And the leadership are forced to figure out what are we going to do here? And this message that is the church's, that was Israel's, is our message. And you and I are asked to now take the same message, and we're going to see as we move on what that message is and how we do it, of this message of the countercultural nature of God and press it into the world and ask not just political leaders. Sometimes we think too grandly, and we think that this is just about, you know, it doesn't really apply to me because I don't have many opportunities to speak to leaders in the world. No, we are to massage the gospel into every nook and cranny of humanity. The way you parent, the way you shovel your driveway, everything is gospel-centered, everything. Now, here's an example of how this gets used, because it's not just the church here, and at the end we're going to tackle how, how could they actually be this sort of a people. But about 300 years after this story in the book of Acts, um, there's a king named, uh, emperor of Rome named Theodosius. And Theodosius is, um, he's, people, I don't know if people realize, uh, Constantine had made Christianity a legal religion in Rome. But it's Theodosius who's the one who makes it the official, the sole religion of Rome, of, of the Roman Empire. So he's canonized, right? Many churches think he's a saint. But at the time, not so saintly. Because Ambrose, who was a bishop of Milan at the time, takes exception to this king. Because Ambrose, or Theodosius, although he seems to be a Christian, he does something. There's a revolt in Thessalonica. And when it happens, it's, it's not really a revolt. It's a bit of an ups, uh, a skirmish, and it leads to a Roman official being killed. But in response to it, Theodosius uh, orders the, the army to go in, and in three hours, they kill 7,000 men, women, and children. They brutally just, just butcher people. So Ambrose is so disgusted as the bishop of Rome with Theodosius that he leaves the court, and he excommunicates. He says, you're not, you're no communion for you. You're not even welcome at the church the way you're behaving. So when Theodosius then shows up one Sunday to church, Ambrose meets him at the door, and he says, you are not welcome here. There's too much blood on your hands. Theodosius, thinking he's clever, uh, says, listen, David killed people, and he had a heart after God. And Ambrose's response is, good, now go and model him in repentance. Then you can come back. Now, argue if you'd like. You don't have to agree with this 4th century AD, but he was willing to speak truth of the gospel into that situation that requires a certain degree of bravery uh, of understanding of the culture understanding of the gospel a wisdom all of it and you and i are called with the same message of truth into anywhere we go 
This is why we spend so much time here at Redeemer doing all these classes and studies. It's not because we just like filling your head with info. It's to equip you to then know how to go into the world and ask, how do I now transform my workplace, as secular as it is, with the gospel? How do I speak truth to this power? How? And so that's the first thing. What's the message? Christ is Lord. That's a sufficient message for us. Christ is Lord, not the world. But then we have this fascinating thing of how the power responds to the message. And um, let me start like uh, with this one, with um, Lord of the Rings. You all know I love Lord of the Rings. So in Lord of the Rings, if you don't know the story, there's this ring. Um, and this ring of power, it's an evil ring. It's designed and created by the evil Lord Sauron, and he um, it embodies evil. And it falls into the hands of the good guys. And the good guys decide we have to destroy this ring because if we do, we can break the hold of evil in the world, etc. And it falls to a little hobbit, a halfling, named Frodo, to take the ring. And the only way to destroy it is to bring it to where it was created, but that's a perilous journey. So they, divide, they create a fellowship to, to help God get him there, and thousands of pages later, you have a book. But, <laughs> but at one point, the weight of this ring, because not only is it a big burden to get it there and destroy it, that everything is counting on Frodo, but the weight of the ring itself, because it, by its nature, it corrupts. It wants to corrupt anyone who touches it. And he feels the weight of it. And at one point, he turns to his good friend, who is a wizard, a powerful wizard named Gandalf. And he says, gosh, you're so wise. Why don't you take the ring? Here is the response. You're so wise and powerful. Will you not take the ring? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible. And over me, the ring would again, or sorry, would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed and his face was lit by, the fire, by a fire within. Do not tempt me, for I do not wish to become like the Dark Lord himself. Here's the key. Yet, the way of the ring to my heart is by pity. Pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe and unused. What, what Gandalf understands is this. Power itself is not a thing. It's not, there's, no, there's no moral strength in power or, or good or bad in it. But power, when leagued with a corrupted heart, is terrible. And when Gandalf realizes that the way of power, he says to him, he says, you know, the power of the ring, the challenge is it's going to appeal to my pity. It's, what I'm going to be tempted to do is look at the world and say, look at the broken. Look at how much need there is. If I had power, I could make it better. And he knows himself well enough to know that he's so corrupt that eventually, even if he succeeded in bringing the weak up, it would only be at the cost of brutalizing the brutal. And so he knows power cannot be wielded well by him or by anyone, for that matter. Because power mixed with a corrupt heart always ends up in selfishness, destruction, and recklessness. And so, the men of Pharaoh and Sanhedrin, listen, these men, just like our politicians, just like every father who yells at his children, every mother who lets down their parents or their kids, every human, very few of us intend to be wicked. We don't. But what we find is that having a certain degree of power brings out the wickedness in us. If we don't have truth constantly speaking to our power, we have to have the truth constantly speaking to it. Now, let's get back into the examples of, the, of Pharaoh and then Acts in, Pharaoh, in, in Exodus. The Egyptians enslave Israel, chapter 1. Why? Well, because they're terrified. Dread of Israel came over Egypt, we're told. And so what do power holders do? Well, you use the means of power at your disposal to maintain power. 
So what you do is you get the police force and the law and coercion, and you take these people you're afraid of and you make them slaves. So you exercise power to keep power. Right? Simple. Now, many things happen here, so I can't go through all the, the, the plagues. But what I can say is this. Power, well, Frederick Douglass says it better. He was a, a slave who was a freed and then became a thinker and a politician and so much more. And he, well, and this, he rightly says, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. And so when Pharaoh is confronted with the call from God to acknowledge that he is Lord and his people should be free, he is very slow to concede. He doesn't want to submit. In fact, you're going to see how, what it takes to submit. So the first thing, we, I'm going to jump all the way to chapter 10, so we're going to miss a few of the plagues. But something, there's a fascinating negotiation that takes place that you probably have not noticed, even though it's right there, between Pharaoh and God and Moses. So Pharaoh realizes, okay, we're eight or nine plagues in here, and, thing, and my, my power is being, being um, exposed as weak. Like, I can't, I can't compete with the power of this God. So he then begins to negotiate, which is what all people do, all, all dictators do when they feel power slipping. You all then you start to negotiate. How do I maintain some power? So in, verse, in chapter 10, verse 8, he turns to Moses and says, fine, you can go, but tell me which ones you're going to take. Now that seems innocuous, but it's not. Imagine a Nazi uh, guard in a prison camp turns to one of the prisoner Jews and says, you tell me which ones I should kill. What is he doing in that situation? What he's doing is he is trying to make that prisoner complicit in the, in the murder. So what Pharaoh is doing is saying, listen, don't blame me. Moses had a choice. He chose the women and children to go. He chose the people from his tribe, not you. So he's offering. He's offering to share a little power, isn't he? Here, have a little bit of... You can now choose who comes and goes, Moses. So if Moses wasn't the man he is and not, if God didn't have his hand firmly on him, Moses might have been, like Gandalf was, say, was saying, be tempted to say, ah, look, there's a concession of power. I can use this power to save the destitute. I can take the weakest among my people and save them. He could be tempted to do that, but he isn't, because as we said at the start, truth cannot compromise. What's make, that's what makes it so hard about the church. We cannot compromise on, the, on God's truth. And so his response in verse, 10, verse 9 right afterwards is, we're all going to go. There's no option. There's no negotiating with terrorists. We all go or none of us go. That's what he says to, Moses, to Pharaoh. Now, knowing he's, he's in a bind, a few verses later in verse 24, the same chapter, he then says, okay, well, darkness plague has just hit. And he says, fine, fine, you can go, but your flocks have to stay. Now, what is he doing? It's collateral. You can go, but I need to hold power over you somehow. I can't let you just go for nothing. So I'm going to take the flocks. They stay here, because that way you've got to come back, and if you go, then I still have all your wealth. I maintain power, right? The illusion of power. Moses' response is, it's, it, it should be what most of us say when we, are, be, when we feel threatened by powers. His answer is wonderful. He says, our, lives, our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Power. Power cannot abide truth, and truth cannot bend to power. You have to stay the course. Don't be tempted by the partial concessions. The final plague then comes. And the final plague is the, the death of the firstborn, and Pharaoh's son dies. So he suffers as well. And here we see, finally, he has to acknowledge human power, or, or God, divine power. Human power is on its knees. 
because he not only lets them go, but then look at what he says at the end. Be gone, but bless me also. Now, he not only has to acknowledge the truth, he has to bend and seek truth for himself because he knows it has power, not him. So now he has been converted, and this is what the truth of God spoken into the world always demands, always desires, conversion, repentance. It wants, God comes and says, I need them to acknowledge me as Lord and accept me as Lord. If they don't, that's their business, but that's his desire, that they would convert. And Pharaoh is on his knees. At this point, the locus of power has shifted from the thesis to the antithesis, and now we're awaiting what the synthesis is, what's going to come. Now, turn to Acts. When Acts comes, we see the same thing happening that the truth comes, and how do the power holders respond? Exactly the same. They have a certain degree of power that they use to restrain or destroy the threat. Arrest them, denounce them, threaten them, and beat them. That's what we're going to do. Those are the, the tools of the power. But what does the truth do? How does it, you see, just like, like, like Pharaoh's power was exposed as being formed with no substance, now we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the legal... Uh, leadership of the time also having to realize that they don't actually have power because they imprison them but what happens the doors open they denounce them and say don't teach or else and they not only do they teach but it says immediately they went the very next morning and they were there every other day after so the power of threat is gone the power of prison is gone then they beat them and if you don't know what that beating is it's the 40 minus 1 rule which in Deuteronomy it says, God says you can, you can beat criminals but never more than 40 lashes not because they're going to die after 40 but because if you read the rest of Deuteronomy the passage he says because they will be degraded in your eyes and the idea being you only beat animals like that you don't beat humans and if you beat somebody like that who's a criminal it goes beyond justice and it dehumanizes them so don't use excessive force. So they do something like this, we think, to them. And that beating is not just meant to punish them, not just meant to discourage others from speaking this way, but it's meant to humiliate them because they walk around beaten and sore with scars and they're reminded of what happens when you cross the power. But even that fails because they leave rejoicing and happy because something in the gospel changes the way they understand everything, including honor and dishonor. And so what do they feel at this moment? Impotence. The powers are now realizing what Pharaoh realized, which is in the face of divine truth, there is no hope for anything but that truth. It is powerful. There is something innate in the truth of God that is more powerful than anything we have. And they can't deny it, and they're being brought to recognize this. Now, with that being said, how do you become this? So we see what the message is. Christ is Lord in every situation. We see power and in the world, everything. It doesn't matter if it's the power of a child or the power of the kings or the power of economy or the power of social media. They will all resist it to the last moment. So how do we become brave enough to do what the church did, which is to take the beatings? And please understand, I mean real courage. I don't mean social media courage. I don't mean the courage that it takes to send out clever memes and mock the culture because that's very easy to do until the shooting starts. I mean, real, and I'll give you an example of why power, this is not just an exercise in philosophy, this is reality. There was, um, you all, well, again, if you're older, you remember this person, Nikita Khrushchev. Remember Nikita Khrushchev? He was a, um, the uh, leader of the, of the Soviet Union for a time, to late 50s into the 60s. And at one point, he's giving a public, he's at a public meeting and he's speaking. 
and he denounces Joseph Stalin. He says Stalin was, his policies were corrupt, he was brutal, he was not a man for Russia. And somebody in the crowd yells out, you were one of his colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Nikita Khrushchev yells, who said that? And for about four or five minutes, not one word is heard. And after he says, that's why I said nothing. Now you know why I was silent. Because they wouldn't stand up because they saw the power in his hand, right? Who said that? Because if you stand up for what you just said, it's not just you're going to get few people don't like you on social media. You're going to be killed. And not just that, if you know the way they did things, your family and everybody else is too. Are you willing? Do you believe the truth that much? Are you willing to lose everything, to risk everything for the truth of God? And it sounds flippant. We think we want to be like the first. It's amazing how many churches say, I want to be an Acts 2 church, but I don't want the persecution. You know, I want all the good things, but I don't want these things. It's hard, and I understand that. So how do we do it? How do you become a truth speaker? How do we actually accomplish this as a, as a church or as individuals? How do they become so courageous? Um, and remember, it's not just ma micro level or macro level. I'm not just talking about standing up to vaccinations or anything you don't like about the government. That's, that's actually a small part of it. It takes just as much courage to tell your family, no. It takes just as much courage to go to your workplace and say, no, this is not true, this is not right. And so how do we become that people, wherever we're called to, to be agents of truth? Well, Peter's sermon does it. Peter has a three-verse sermon here. Don't you wish I was that concise? <laughs> I'm not clever enough, I'm afraid, to be that concise. But in this sermon, he tells you everything you need to know about how to become the sort of people that he became and the early church was, and all these people in history as well. First thing is, when he says right at the outset, we must obey God. He must. That's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. The early church and the people who call themselves Christians have to be so convinced that God, Christ is Lord that they see disobeying him as ridiculous, impossible. How can I, I can't disobey him. I'm afraid we don't do that far often enough in the, in, ever in Christianity because it's very easy to compromise, to say, I know God is Lord, but a little bit of porn. I know God is Lord, but a little bit of this, a little bit of that. These compromises indicate we don't really understand this. We must obey God, he says, not man. That's a hard truth. And he, we know it because then he says, Christ is archagon, which I said earlier, is, is prince, he's Lord. I have, to, I have to do this. And if you don't have a, big, a God that is big enough that you think you have to obey him, then there's a few ways you can start to develop that. And one of them is, first of all, come to church. Not because there's you know, magical things happen here, but because you need to be around the people of God, especially when you don't feel like you should be around the people of God. It's so easy, and as a pastor, I see people who say, gosh, I'm not in a good place. I'm not in a great place with God, so I'm not going go to go to, to church. I'm not going to go to community group, small group. I'm not going to go to whatever. And I understand that impulse, but I'm telling you very simply, it's wrong. If you think you have to be in the right place to stand before God and admit you're a sinner, then you're mistaken. You simply have to stand before God and say, I'm a sinner. And it's here, in the presence of God's people, where he promises to be. And he will be here ministering. So our vision of God needs to come bigger. One is attending. Two is spend time reading scripture, praying to God, thinking about the bigness of God. Read other authors and people and talk to people around you who have a bigger vision of God than you. Because as you fill your mind with him, 
you're gonna, he's going to get bigger and bigger. Listen to the people's miracle stories that you think, ah, is it a miracle? I don't know. Listen to them. Because as you begin to see how big God is in everyone's experience, you begin to see how big he is in your own experience. And this bigness, this must obey in Peter, never became pride. See, what I, one of the things I don't love about the way we do things today is we feel like I have to defy the government, and that means I have to be a jerk. And there are certain preachers out there I don't suggest you listen to, not because their theology is wrong, but because their manner is wrong. Because they think everything is defiance and anger and anger and anger. Notice what Peter does here. He does something so subtle and so beautiful. When he's speaking to him, he says, listen, God, the God of our fathers, when he says that, he's standing there as someone trying to, dis to, to disrupt the status quo. But he knows he's one of them. He's not, it's kind of like what Martin Luther during the Reformation. Luther kept saying to the Catholic Church, I don't want to destroy the Catholic Church. I'm trying to reform it. I'm trying to get you to accept what God is saying. You see, he wasn't there trying to destroy it because he realized his vision of God is so big, far be it from him to destroy God's church. Far be it from Peter to dismantle and, disharm, and to harm the people of God. That's not what he's trying to do. He's pleading with them. He's not angry with them. He's trying to save them. And that, because he had such a big vision of God, he wouldn't just hammer his people. And the same way, we have to do the same thing. We have to think God is so big, must be obeyed. But he must be obeyed because in the way he demands, he loves the world. He doesn't hate the world. We come not to judge the world. We come to call it to repentance. That's the message. So we must obey. That's the first thing. They're compelled. They feel like they have to obey, but it's not just a, force, a forcing. Because the next thing is, they will obey. Because this sermon doesn't just say he is God and we have to obey him. Notice what else it says. Because the truth that compelled them to obey also made them want to obey. And so, listen to what he says. God gave Jesus, raised him and exalted him. And beautiful words, which you can wrestle with in your community, your small groups. He, through Christ, he gives repentance. He gives forgiveness. So what Peter is saying is, listen, God, supreme power, has then used that power to free me, to forgive me. And because he has seen... See, uh, obedience is a byproduct of grace. You obey because you've been forgiven. And he's saying, this is God. You should obey him because he's God. But also, look what he's done as God. He didn't crush you, though he could have. Instead, what he did is he sent his son to die for you, raised him, raised him, meaning raised him up to be Lord so that he would be deserving of then raising his own, you. And because of that, it makes him want to obey. So all at once, and this is the paradox of Christianity, you are forced, you must obey God. He's Lord. But you also want to obey him because he's a good Lord. And Karl Barth, who I don't always love all of Karl Barth's theology, but he says something beautiful here. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice evokes an echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder follows lightning. And so, Christians, church, we do all that we, we speak truth to power, not because we're jerks, not because we have to defy them and stick our middle finger up at the world. It's not it. We do it because we're, we want everyone to experience what we've experienced, even our enemies. And this, so they're willing to do it because God is worthy of it. So they must do it, they will do it, and lastly, he tells us that he can do it. How do you actually do it? Well, he says very plainly, all who respond to grace are given the Spirit. 
and the Spirit is a witness, which is what Jesus said in John 15, 26. So the witness is the Spirit to what Christ has done and who he is. And then that Spirit is given to you to be a witness. You can be a witness because you have the witness in you. Without that Spirit in you, you're a witness to something, but it's not to God. Very simple. And we can obey. We can actually stand up and risk everything because God has made us able to by his Spirit. So we actually can do it. And we don't, thank goodness he's forgiving. But he's given us every reason to want to. He's demanded it. He's given us reason to want to do it. And he's made us capable of doing it. And I'll close this part. The gospel, Christianity, makes you look stupid at math. <laughs> math is very simple in the world. If I, have good, if I have two, it's better than having one. Right? If I have a good life, it's better than having a hard life. But what the gospel says is it inverts it all. It turns everything on its head, and this is why it's so antithetical, why it's so challenging, why it's so disruptive and so compelling, and has been and always will be. Paul, in chapter 3 of Philippians, he goes on and says how wonderful he is, right? He says, I've had a great, listen, if, if it was, I've had a good life. I have social power as a Pharisee. I have educational power because of uh, my schooling. I've got power in every situation. I have every reason to boast. And then he says, but... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, this is stupid to the world. It's foolishness. Because the world says, why would you ever risk everything, die even, be willing to die to tell somebody a story? Because that's what Christianity is. You're sharing the story of who God is and what he has done. And we say we're willing to risk everything for the sake of being able to tell that story to people who need to hear it. And the world says, that's dumb. Just be quiet. Do it on social media where you can't be attacked. Right? Just do it in other ways. There's better ways. Good stewardship of your time. And we accept it far too often. What we're lacking in the church is not education. My friends, you could get better teaching elsewhere. You can read books. They'll say it better than I will. What you're lacking is faith. <laughs> We don't trust it. We don't believe it's actually better. We don't really believe as often as we'd like that Paul is telling the truth, that everything is worth losing for the sake of honoring God. Everything. That's hard to believe. This is what it is. This is what the gospel does. Because truth will speak to power in the world only after it's first spoken to your heart. Because truth comes to you and I first and tries to expose and topple the power of our heart that says someone else is Lord. Something else should be honored. And when first that truth has come, spoken to us and converted us, then we'll be ready to go out. And we're going to screw up. We're going to fail. That's why you need the church. Because when I'm weak, you are strong, he is strong through you and you help me. And we all help each other. We need to be here for one another. So Christians, God gets big to you when you magnify him. Treat him like your cell phone. If you read your Bible the way you look at your cell phone every 30 seconds, if at the car, you know, you're at the car at the light, and you're like trying to read Philippians instead of checking your emails, which are probably something nonsensical. If at night before you go to bed you try to unwind by reading scripture and praying rather than look at, and I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Well, maybe I am. I'm trying to make me feel bad. See what we have given priority to. Magnify God. By magnifying him, the scripture, what does it mean? It means to set something on him and to make something that is small to you appear big. That's what magnifying is. You don't make God bigger. He's big bigger than you.
But in magnifying him, you seek to make him bigger to you. Do it, Christians. If you're a skeptic, I dare you to challenge the truth. I dare you to, not because I'm proud or think I'm clever. No, I'm not talking about me. Read Scripture. Allow the truth of Scripture to challenge your, your worldview and see what will happen. Embrace the only one who uses his power for you and not to keep power. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that you, um, that you love us enough to come and continually set men and women before us all through history who would come and challenge power. Not just power in the world, but power in our hearts and every other way as we've talked about. Thank you that you won't let your children become captive. Thank you for those men and women who have and continue to and will um, take your word and challenge us and challenge the world. Father, help us to be that sort of a church as well. Not for our sake. We certainly don't want glory because we see what happens to people when they glorify themselves in this world. But Lord, we want to bring glory to you. And we can see no better way of doing it than simply telling the world who you are and what you've done and what you want. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the fact that you speak truth to our hearts. Thank you that you will not let us win. That you will not allow power, human power, to accomplish what it wants. But that you have a plan to undo it all. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for your son. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Lord, help it to fuel, fuel our ministry and our mission. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 